This is Macro Horizons, High Quality Spreads, monthly episode four, Echoes of 2001. I'm your host, Dan Creeder, here with Dan Belton, as we discuss the most timely themes in spread markets on a monthly basis. In this edition, with Halloween in just a couple days, we discuss how similarities between the 2001 cycle and the current cycle may haunt credit spreads over the next few months. Each month, we offer a view on credit spreads, ranging from the highest quality sectors such as agencies and SSAs to investment-grade corporates. We also focus on U.S. dollar swap spreads and all the factors that entails, including funding markets, cross-currency markets, and the transition from LIBOR to SOFR. The topics that come up most frequently in conversations with clients and listeners form the basis for each episode, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us with questions or topics that you would like to hear discussed. We can be found on Bloomberg, or email directly at dan.creter, K-R-I-E-T-E-R, at bmo.com. We value and greatly appreciate your input. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Now, before we get into some of the reasons why we think credit spreads could come under pressure in the next few months, Dan, how have credit spreads performed in the month since our last podcast? You know, it's been much of a continuation of the narrative for most of the year, and that's one of credit compression. Investment-grade corporate spreads have narrowed pretty significantly over the month of October. Higher-quality products such as SSAs remain well-bid and continue to trade in the single digits above treasuries as investors continue to sort of search for yield and and add credit products to, to enhance yield. Yeah, I agree with you. Narrow credit spreads, when we look back on 2019, is certainly going to be one of the storylines that's most remembered. What do you think is driving such narrow credit spreads? You know, first, the main thing is this continued yield grab environment that I just mentioned. Since really 2016 or so, there's just been a, a sort of slow grind tighter in yield. This has been, of course, much of the story in the SSA market. It's also investment-grade corporate spreads have widened more significantly at times over the past couple of years. But the reach for yield has really been a, a dominant narrative in all credit products. Secondly, supportive technicals have really kept spreads well bid. This has been especially true in the SSA market since the beginning of 2018. Corporate issuance has slowed significantly this year. Of course, September had strong corporate issuance of about $160 billion, which was one of the strongest months on record. It's really been the opposite story in October. We've had just over $40 billion as of the recording of, of this in the investment-grade corporate space in October, bringing the sort of two-month average now to something well within historical norms. Issuance in the investment-grade corporate market to date this year has been just about 87 or so percent of the last three-year average. So supportive technicals have, have really added to this to this grind tighter in, in spreads. And then, of course, the narrowing in swap spreads that we've seen since about March of this year has also contributed to the credit spread narrowing. Yeah, I agree with you. I think those are probably the three most important drivers of tight spreads. And what we're going to talk about in this month's podcast is that we see evidence to think that all three of them might turn from being a tailwind into a headwind here in the near term. And I think we'll start with the most important theme that you mentioned, which is the yield grab, the the strongest factor keeping spreads narrow. And what could change that? And to answer that question, we went back and we looked at 
the spread market reaction to the beginning of a Fed easing cycle, both in the current environment and in the three previous cycles. So we only have four cycles to work with here. But what we found was that in two of the three initial rate cuts by the Fed in the three previous cycles, we saw credit spreads both widen and decompress in response. And those were in 1998 and 2007. The only exception was in 2001, where we saw a response very similar to what we're seeing today, credit spread staying well anchored, even tightening modestly. So already 2001 is most similar to 2019 quantitatively, but we can also find some qualitative similarities that are worth highlighting. In both 1998 and in 2007, we had a Fed that was being more reactive to an event that had already taken place. For example, in 1998, we'd already seen the Russian default and the failure of LTCM, which prompted the Fed into action. And similarly, in 07, we saw the failure of two Bear Stearns hedge funds and the beginning of the subprime contagion. Now, once the Fed cut rates, no one knew yet just how widespread the subprime contagion really was. But again, we had the Fed responding to something that was already in the markets. In 2001, there wasn't an event that was already attracting fear among investors. It was very similar to the 2019 cut where the Fed saw deteriorating economic data and decided to be proactive in cutting rates in an attempt to prolong the business cycle. And so when you have that hope that, that you're going to have the, the business cycle extended by the Fed and you don't have an event that's already increasing investor risk aversion, you see this optimistic reaction in spreads markets where credit spreads stay you know, at narrow levels or even narrow further. So the question then became, when did that narrowing run out of steam in 2001? We already mentioned that in the, in the first three months after the cut, spread stayed low, but the rally ran out of gas in just six months afterwards. And in, in the six to 12 month period, we saw a significant repricing of credit spreads. Now we have to acknowledge that the initial spark toward wider spreads was the terrorist attack uh, in September of 2001. So. Obviously, we're not going to see something similar in, in the 2019 experience. But there is another similarity between 2001 and 2019 worth highlighting. And that is some troubling metrics in the corporate market. Dan, can you tell us about those? Right. So like you mentioned, there's sort of a weakness in the corporate market that we saw in 2001, similar to 2019, whereas in 2007, it was more of a consumer story. Uh, and what we mean by that is if you look at the net debt to EBITDA ratios of all investment grade corporate borrowers, it's at multi-cycle highs right now. And the last time it was anywhere near as high as it is right now was 2001. Leverage never really ran up in the 2007 cycle. So the argument we're making is that you have this weakness fundamentally that's underlying in the corporate market. And in 2001, it took an event like a terrorist attack to bring some of those cracks to the surface. And while something similar is unlikely this time around, it's not like this market is without risk. Right, Dan? Yeah, exactly. There's, there's significant risks both in the corporate market and also just macroeconomic risks that we think have the potential to really uh, be a catalyst to wider spreads. And can you tell us what some of those are? Sure. So broadly, from a macroeconomic standpoint, we have to point out that there is a heightened risk of an economic recession in the United States at some point in the next year. And without going too deep into the weeds about the incoming economic data weakness that we've seen over the last few months, we'll simply point out that recession probability models currently have the odds of technical recession in the U.S. in the next year 
at something around 35 to 40%, which is obviously elevated. It's higher than it's been at any point since the financial crisis. And that would be, of course, bearish for credit markets. Additionally, with respect to, to corporate debt specifically, we have seen an uptick in ratings downgrades over the last several weeks. This has been more of a story in the high yield space than investment grade markets, but it's still something that is worth monitoring because typically when we see a wave of ratings downgrades, it has the tendency to potentially escalate very quickly. And so it's something that we're going to continue to watch, although we don't necessarily expect a wave of downgrades in the investment grade space to follow in our base case, but it's certainly a tail risk. Finally, this week, we're, of course, in the thrust of earnings season, and we've been talking for most of this year about the potential for an earnings recession, which is consecutive quarters of negative earnings growth to happen in the United States as, as a result of the, the, the lingering effects of the trade war. And we are currently tracking for net income to declined by about 1%. Of course, this is subject to incoming earnings, which have the potential to change that. But we are expecting a slight decline in earnings from last year. So that's something that's, that's additionally worth monitoring. It would be the first time that year-over-year -year net income growth among investment-grade corporate borrowers would turn negative since 2016. And these risk factors you point out are in addition to some of the other macro risk events out there that could flare up at any time, including Brexit, situation in Hong Kong, Middle East tension, even to maybe a lesser extent, the impeachment process here in the U.S. There's just a lot of sources of potential risk out there. And given the fundamental weakness in the corporate market that we've been talking about for a while now, all it takes is an increase in risk aversion to, to bring some of those cracks to the surface. I mean, we've talked about the yield grab as being one of the main drivers of narrow spreads. And, and inherently what we're saying there is that, you know, you have more demand for high quality spread products than we have supply. That dynamic may not change. There might still be plenty of investment assets. What I think is going to change is that those assets aren't going to be lent out for free anymore, that there will be some event from one of the many we've identified that will increase risk aversion, increase volatility, potentially see a, a, de a decline in equities and a repricing of credit across the curve. And this study between the 2001 experience and 2019 only reinforces that view. Now, we've only talked about one factor so far, and that is the potential for the yield grab environment to, uh, to weaken and send credit spreads wider. But we also have to talk about the other two. Maybe at this point would be a good idea to talk about swap spreads that have narrowed for most of 2019. But over the course of the past month, we've seen some modest widening in response to the Fed's interventions at the short end of the curve, as we were expecting, the question becomes, will swap spreads continue to widen? Over the course of the past week, it seems that optimism around the Fed's quote-unquote solution to this excess collateral problem has faded a bit. And as a result, swap spreads were a bit weak last week. Dan, can you talk a bit about the Fed's intervention into the short-end market so far and how we expect to see year-end playing out in the funding markets? Sure. So most of our listeners know that the reason that swap spreads have been narrowing for most of 2019 has been that repo has been elevated as a result of heavy treasury issuance over the course of the last couple of years. The Fed just last month in mid-September stepped into the repo market as repo rates were spiking amidst a confluence of factors, but the Fed stepped in to inject liquidity in the repo market, and they've been doing so ever since. One of the issues with this Fed intervention in the repo market is that it's only available to primary dealers right now. 
And this unavailability of these repo operations to other institutions limits the amount of relief to the repo market that the Fed has been able to provide. And this is because of just the netting problem. Year-end banks want to shrink their balance sheet down as they determine GSIB risk surcharges for the next year, among other things. And while repo at the Fed helps, it still increases dealer balance sheet. So it doesn't matter how much liquidity the Fed wants to make available. If the primary dealers won't intermediate that flow and send the liquidity downstream to the market participants that need it, you're not going to see that degree of relief for repo markets and thereby swap spreads. And that dynamic seemed to be highlighted last week when when spreads were narrower amid growing pessimism around the end of the year. But it's actually interesting. We think that the pessimism might actually be being a bit overdone. We've been monitoring this funding stress story for months now. It's been one of our main calls that something like the event we saw in September was going to happen eventually. And now that it's happened, the market is now on top of this story and is of the belief that year-end is not going to go as well. I actually think those fears might be starting to get a bit overblown for a few reasons. First, if you look at just the last two quarter ends alone in June and September, there was a lot of worry going into both episodes and repo rates were elevated in the weeks and days heading into both quarter ends. And then what did we see on the actual day? In both circumstances, we saw overnight rates start to fall and fall significantly with quarter end actually not proving to be very challenging. How can we explain this? At this point, I feel like fear of quarter end is is almost becoming more damaging to the market than the actual quarter end technicals that are at play. People are so worried about funding positions over quarter end that some investors are hitting bids on screen just to lock up financing well ahead of quarter end that maybe if they'd waited until the end, they could actually find more attractive financing. As a result, there's almost as much of a psychological aspect of quarter end at this point than there is a technical one. Secondly, and perhaps more importantly, is I think that this repo story is now on the Fed's radar. They've identified the problem, and they do not want to see significant stress in financing markets going forward, especially now that they're in the market with open market operations, trying to assure the market that this type of volatility can be prevented by the Fed. As a result, I think that we are going to see significant intervention by the Fed into year-end if it's warranted. That includes larger-term operations, as much liquidity as the market needs, really. And well, the dynamic that we talked about earlier, where whether or not that liquidity gets to the people that need it is an open question. The message the Fed is sending and its willingness to be in the market on a day-to-day basis should provide some comfort to the market that the repo market won't be disorderly heading into year-end. And so as a result, we should continue to see swap spreads trending wider in the medium and long term. Now, We're going to see some episodes like last week where there's a little less optimism over the Fed's interventions, and you're going to see repo trade a bit elevated, certainly at times between now and year end, and you'll see swap spreads narrow as a result. But the general trend should be wider. And and I think that our targets that we put in place in our last podcast of seven basis points in twos and a half a basis point in fives for year end, I think we'd still feel comfortable with those targets. And so as swap spreads widen, that should put some some pressure on credit spreads as well heading into year end. And that brings us to the third factor that has really been super supportive of spreads so far in 2019, and that is supportive technicals. Dan, you talked a bit about supportive issuance technicals in, in the corporate market earlier this episode. In the high quality market, it's been the same. We've had 
negative net issuance in, in high quality markets for the second consecutive year in 2019. And that's at the same time, the treasury issuance has, has expanded rapidly, which is a spread narrower. You've got technicals in both the spread and treasury markets pointing to narrower spreads for the majority of 2019. Now, talking first about supply side technicals, there is reason to think that supply side technicals in the high quality market will decline in the months ahead. And as an example of that, just look at the US dollar SSA market. Our issuance projections for October, November put net issuance in US dollar SSAs at positive 7 billion for October, November. Now, that may not sound like a lot, it's not a lot, but it's also the first time since February that net issuance in the US dollar SSA market has been positive at all, and only the fourth time in the span of the last two years where that's been positive. So even if it's not technicals becoming a direct headwind, they won't be a tailwind for the first time, which should be a spread widener. And what's your view on corporate supply technicals going forward? Yeah, so it's interesting. Following one of the strongest months of issuance on record in September, we've had an extremely light month of October in the primary market. And this is largely due to the return of ECB quantitative easing. And we've seen a shift in some issuers moving away from U.S. dollar markets and into the euro markets. In fact, issuance in euros over the last two months has been the strongest two months of issuance on record. And I think these supportive technicals in the U.S. dollar market have been a really strong reason for the continued grind tighter in spreads over the course of October. Now, as for where technicals go from here, I think we'll see an uptick in November. I think we're going to see November and December more in line with historical norms for those months. And then 2020, I think we're going to see issuance somewhat in line with what we've seen in 2019. So fairly light in terms of longer term historicals, but about in line with this year. And it's worth noting here that, unsurprisingly, while corporate issuance was extremely heavy in the euro markets in the past few weeks, we've seen a repricing of the euro-dollar cross-currency basis in the in the five-year and longer tenors to much wider levels. So if anything, that should decrease the attractiveness of the euro market going forward and bring some supply back to the U.S. This ECBQE and issuance in the euro market from U.S. corporations isn't going away. But given where the basis has moved in just the past month, it seems unlikely that that supply is going to be in, in the euro market so heavily going forward. So in both IG markets and in high quality markets, there's reason to believe that supply side technicals are going to deteriorate looking ahead. But even more concerning than the supply side technicals are, are the demand side technicals, at least for me. First, just from a seasonal standpoint, November tends to be an extremely weak month for spreads in both corporates and high-quality spreads looking back historically. For high-quality spreads in, in particular, November is the worst performing month of the year on average. And it, it makes sense from a position-squaring P&L perspective heading into year-end. Everyone just basically closes up the books, and whatever supply does come or whatever inventory dealers are sitting on has a hard time clearing the market, and you see spreads widen in response. Yeah, and I think there's something to be said for the position-squaring story, especially this year when you have so much volatility and lingering risks on the horizon. I think there's sort of an additional reason to think that investors might just opt to sort of close out positions heading into year end. We've seen that in the corporate market. On, since 2014, on average, corporate spreads have widened by about five basis points in each of November and December. We think that we're likely to see a sort of similar effect this year. Yeah. And another factor to consider here is that 
in both corporate and high quality markets, January is the largest issuance month of the year. And what we've seen historically is that investors know this and will sometimes look to put cash to work in, in January where they might be able to pick up some new issue concession. And that's at times when the curve was normal shaped. Now we're in an environment where the yield curve is inverted and short rates are higher than long-term rates. So you can park your money in cash and repo, what have you, and wait to put your money to work into those large deals in January. And your incentive is only stronger to do so in an inverted yield curve environment. So those technicals, I think, are a concern. And then I want to highlight another one we've been watching here closely on our desk, and that is the continued move wider in MBS spreads compared to other products. Dan, how have mortgages moved in the past few weeks? Well, yeah, MBS spreads have really cheapened over the last couple months relative to, say, investment-grade corporates. Part of this is due to Fed balance sheet policy. So the Fed is now allowing a maximum of $20 billion in MBS to roll off of its portfolio each month and to kind of be absorbed into the private market. This is obviously bearish for MBS, and it's cheapened them considerably to alternatives this has been amplified by the fact that outright yields have been rallying and there's been a wave of prepays in the mortgage market. So this $20 billion maximum of runoff from the Fed's portfolio has been hit virtually each month. Right. So there's just a lot of supply that the mortgage market has to take down. And we're seeing some indigestion with widening spreads. I think maybe the best way to exemplify how much mortgage spreads have widened is to look at level 2A Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac MBS for an HQLA portfolio manager. So as a level 2A asset, if you buy Fannie and Freddie MBS for an HQLA portfolio, there has to be a 15% haircut. And that's 15% that you cannot be using to invest in something more profitable in other parts of the bank, say in whole loans or something like that. As a result of that, when you take into account the opportunity cost of a level 2A investment, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac MBS has looked unattractive to an HQLA portfolio manager in the U.S. for the better part of the last three years until the last month or so when that arbitrage actually moved positive for the first time since early 2015. Really, that demonstrates two things. First, it demonstrates how much mortgage spreads have widened in the past few months. And secondly, it, it shows why widening mortgage spreads are a concern for high-quality spreads in general. Because if we start to see some investors looking to the mortgage market to put cash to work instead of SSAs, agencies, or, or IG corporates, we should see those, those spreads start to converge, likely with high-quality sectors moving higher in spread rather than mortgages rallying in line with other sectors. And it's also worth noting here that we find reason to believe that some of this mortgage market indigestion may actually worsen as we look ahead into 2020, and that's because of the unveiling of the Fed's recent bank deregulation package. It was initially proposed back in October 2018 with an official request for comment going out in April. We finally got the final rule here in October, and the rule comes in generally with what we were expecting. No real changes from the official April proposal, where we saw no deregulation relief for the GSIBs and the biggest banks in the U.S., and the deregulation being primarily targeted at, at large regional banks, or what the Fed now calls Category 3 banks. We won't go into the details of the deregulation here for the podcast. Maybe that's more of a read than listen to type of thing. And we certainly wrote about that in our piece. So please take a look at our written publication if, you, if you'd like more detail on what mechanically the deregulation delivered. But from a high level, the Fed estimates that their deregulation measure is going to result in a $62 billion decline in HQLA holdings at Category 3 banks. And 
Category three banks generally hold the majority of their HQLA in either treasuries and mortgages. Now, that may sound a bit counterintuitive right off the bat because we were just talking about how unattractive level 2A assets are for an HQLA manager. That's why you don't see large mortgage holdings at the bulge bracket firms. But for some of these larger regional banks, mortgages are a significant portion of their, of their HQLA portfolio. In fact, we, we took a look at it and on average, level 2A MBS holdings at, at these category three banks is 20% higher than it is for the larger banks that aren't realizing any regulatory relief. So the $62 billion decline in HQLA, a large portion of that is likely to come in mortgages. So in addition to the 20-odd billion a month we're now getting coming off the Fed's portfolio, we could see a one-time wave of up to $62 billion coming out of Category 3 bank HQLA portfolios, just further supply that the mortgage market has to digest. Now, the Fed's rule does have a 60-day implementation period, so we shouldn't see uh, any significant selling in the next two months. But looking ahead to 2020, widening mortgage spreads, which are already a concern for us, are going to become even more so when, when the Fed's deregulation measures really go into effect. And wider mortgage spreads just further weakens the demand side tacticals we've already been talking about in the markets that we cover most directly and influences spreads wider in those markets as well. So we really see looking at the three factors that have supported spreads all year round, namely the yield grab, supportive technicals, and narrowing swap spreads, we expect all three to turn from a tailwind into potentially headwinds in the next few months and expect credit spreads to widen. With this view in mind, Dan, what's the best way for spread market participants to position themselves? Yeah, so like we've been saying for a couple of months now, we continue to like up in credit trades moving out of triple Bs and into double As. We prefer lower beta sectors. We also think that there's some value to be had in moving out the spread curve. So looking at past episodes of economic downturns, credit spread curves have a strong tendency to flatten and strongly invert on occasion as the economy turns. And this makes sense as the credit premium that investors demand increases for shorter dated debt when the economy starts to turn and credit risk increases. And the Fed's recent announcement to increase the size of the balance sheet by buying only bills lends further credence to the idea that you might be better served going out this credit spread curve compared to treasuries. Yeah, that's right. So as the Fed's bill buying program continues on over the next, say, six months or so, as we expect, the front end of the treasury yield curve should steepen, providing further rationale to term out spread product debt. Well, what we're really going to see there is money markets who are going to be the primary selling source for all these bills the Fed wants to buy. They're going to have to put their money to work somewhere else, and they have very limited options. So what we expect to see is those money market funds increasing allocations to short treasury coupons, which should send short-dated G-spreads wider as money market funds and the Fed take down bill and, tr and short coupon supply. So I think in a nutshell, it's fair to say that we don't love spreads at the current levels and would probably more than anything prefer just to go long treasuries here and, and, and try to take advantage of some of that narrowing treasury OIS pressure we should see from Fed bill purchases. But for investors looking to put cash to work in the spread markets now. We find mortgages attractive compared to other asset classes. And if you're a G-spread buyer, we think longer maturities, say like the 10-year point, are most attractive. And if you're buying at the short end of the curve, we prefer using swaps as a hedging vehicle as we expect to continue to see widening in the swap spread market 
in the medium term. Some fits and starts there, but generally swap spreads widening into the end of 2019 and beyond. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads Monthly Episode 4, Echoes of 2001, and Happy Halloween. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com slash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email us at daniel.belton, B-E-L-T-O-N, at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show is supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been edited and produced by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.